0: today is a great day to start your own podcast whether you're looking for a new marketing channel have a message you want to share with the world or just think it would be fun to have your own talk show podcasting is an easy cost-effective and fun way to expand your online reach buzzsprout is hands down the easiest and best way to promote track and launch your podcast your show can be listed on all the major podcast directories within minutes of finishing your recording You can be listed on such directories as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. Podcasting isn't hard when you have the right partners, and the team at Buzzsprout is passionate about helping you succeed. Join over 100,000 podcasters, just like myself, who are already using Buzzsprout to get their message out to the world. Follow the link in the show notes below to get started. This lets Buzzsprout know that I sent you. You will receive a $20 Amazon gift card if you sign up with a paid plan and you're helping support the show. Don't let fear hold you back and let's create something great together on Buzzsprout. Alrighty and welcome to episode number 23. And what an episode I have lined up for you today. I have a very special guest lined up for you, and his name is Dr. Yusuf, and he is a returning guest on the Drunken Worm podcast. He was my first guest, and we're going to get right into the episode for you guys today. Hey, guys, are you looking for a backstage pass? How about a behind-the-scenes look at this podcast? Well, I have exciting news for you. Starting October 1st, we will be opening the doors to the Drunken Worm Podcast and letting our listeners join in the fun and conversation. Check out the different ways that you can support the show and gain access to exclusive content, such as free Drunken Worm Podcast merchandise for one full year. Join an exclusive community where you can talk to other members, vote on upcoming show topics, hear exclusive audio footage from interviews each month, receive a personal shout-out on an upcoming episode, and stay up to date with the Drunken Worm Podcast monthly newsletter so that you can stay informed about upcoming guests, show topics, and community news. With four different pledge options to fit any budget, you can flex your power and become a super fan today. Welcome to the Drunken Worm Podcast, Each week, I will be bringing you dynamic content that will educate and inspire. This podcast was created to talk to mental health professionals about addiction, recovery, and their own personal stories that can help inspire us to become better people and live healthier lives. Alrighty, and welcome to episode 23. My name is Carl, the host and the creator of the Drunken Worm Podcast, and happy Friday to everybody. I hope everybody is doing well, and I want to thank everybody for taking the time to listening to the show. Maybe you're on your treadmill working out, maybe you're in the garden doing some gardening, but we definitely appreciate you coming on and taking your time today and listening to this episode, episode 23. And my guest today is Dr. Yusuf. Dr. Yusuf was the first guest that I had on the show and he is on episode 3 if you would like to catch up with our first episode. And today we are going to be talking about cultural differences within the addiction areas of the world and we're also going to be talking a little bit about cultural competency and I would like to welcome Dr. Yusuf onto the show. Dr. Yusuf, welcome very very, very much. Thank you for taking the time tonight and Thank coming on. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, very you're very welcome. I, I, you know, you and I have worked together um a, a few times, and, and I just love talking recovery with you, and I, I love talking about the disease of addiction, and and I love talking about all the different nuances and and everything, and so I'm I was really excited to be able to bring you back onto the show, and you and I had talked about doing a show about different cultures and how addiction affects different cultures and and cultural competency when it comes to addiction professionals and how we can address um, different cultures when they come into a, a treatment center and understanding that better so that we can better understand and make the client more comfortable when they come into a treatment center. And so uh, I'm really excited to have this episode. And, and you and I were talking a little bit before the um, I hit the record button there, and you are originally from Egypt and have mm-hmm. been able to do some work in the recovery field over in Europe and um, over in uh, Africa. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. In uh, in Europe briefly, and uh, in Northern Africa and the Middle East. Oh, excellent. Well, you know, and with the episode that we did, episode number three, you talked a lot about. How you got into uh, being uh, into therapy? How you got into working into the addiction field, and um, you know, in, in all of the schooling schooling that you have done, and and everything. Uh, so this is great because I actually didn't realize that you worked in the addiction field over in Europe and over in uh, these other countries. So I feel like I'm I'm learning a, a little bit more about about Yusuf today. Well, I
1: uh, I appreciate the opportunity that uh, every time I get to talk a little bit about
0: myself and we get to talk a lot about addiction and treatment. Yes, yes. Uh, So you currently work uh, here in the United States in Northern California for an addiction center, and you're the uh, clinical director for them, and you yep. have a lot of responsibility with your job there, and I know that the company that you're working for is growing rapidly and doing a lot of amazing things in recovery and um, a lot of amazing things in addiction treatment, and so – um uh, again I'm I, I know that your time is very precious to you and you have a beautiful family as well so um, I'm I'm very grateful that you have taken the time to come on today so Thank let's you. let's talk a little bit about how is addiction viewed in the world like, we understand how addiction is viewed in the United States for a majority of our listeners who are in the U S but I yeah. do have some listeners over in Asia. I do have some listeners over in Europe. And so how, what is the difference between how we view addiction here in the U S compared to maybe in another portion of the world?
1: You know, it's, it's, uh, that's actually kind of interesting, Carl, because when I first went to Europe after working here for many years, Um, and then to the Middle East and then Northern Africa, different continents, same disease, different faces, same disease, same effect, but uh, with a little bit of variation here and there. And this variation could affect treatment extensively, negative and or positive. Uh, So here in the States, what we see is that with all of the infrastructure that we have and right. the ethics and all the rules and all of the good treatment that we do, mm-hmm. a lot of the people, including the people who are suffering from the disease of addiction, they look at it with a stigma. Mm-hmm. Do you think it's weakness? Do you think it's it's uh, I am not a good person? And, you know, all the other stuff that we talk about. In Europe, is a little bit different. Uh, it has less stigma to it. And we're going to talk about that in a little bit, why it's more open. In the Middle East, it has a lot of stigma to it. And I did a lot of readings about uh, Asia. And I think there is stigma to it, too,
0: from my
1: readings. And that affects treatment in a negative way.
0: Right, right. Because the stigma is how it is viewed within the kind of the general public, right? What, what are um, you know, what am I trying to say Um, how it's viewed within the general public and how uh, people approach it? You know, maybe it's taboo in some places to Mm -hmm. even admit that you drink or it's taboo even to admit that you use hard drugs or even cannabis and, you know, um, we were talking and you said that it's it's it seems to me like it's that way in the Middle East as, uh, you know, some of the laws and stuff have are are very against uh, using anything in your yes. body that is uh, mind altering or, you know, mood changing type of things.
1: Yes. To give you an example of that is uh, uh, like, let's say a place like Italy. Uh, it's more open. Mm-hmm. Uh, people drink wine uh, with uh, dinner, uh, so it's more open. You can drink alcohol with dinner since mm-hmm. you're a little kid, and you just yeah. you know it's actually this is only at dinner beverages, mm-hmm. and you drink it while you're eating dinner.
2: Right.
1: You take that, put it aside, and go to the Middle East. It's prohibited, Muslim countries, mm-hmm. prohibited to drink any alcohol or drugs. And if you take a look at the statistics. Alcoholism in the Middle East, in the Muslim countries in the Middle East, is skyrocketing a lot more than it is in places like Italy or Europe. Yes. Uh, You know, so I am not talking about, I'm just giving, we're talking about the broad Mm -hmm. uh, spectrum of how open the society is. Right. Right. we were just talking right before we, you pushed the record button Mm -hmm. and we were talking about how society is more open and how Mm -hmm. societies are closed. Mm -hmm. Uh, in Europe, uh, a lot of the drugs are legal. Mm -hmm. Whether you're talking about pills or whatever type of drugs, it's legal. You go on, you buy it and you're responsible for what you're doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Here in the States, it is, Oh, oh, let me go back. It's legal in Europe, and therefore it's more controlled. They Mm -hmm. pay taxes, Mm. the seller and the buyer, they pay taxes, and it's more controlled. However, the responsibility is on the person himself, Mm. whether they want to use or not, and to regulate their uh, uh, drug use. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm not saying that it's okay. All I'm saying is that here in the States, we're moving more and we're inching our way towards that concept. Mm -hmm. And when we're talking about addiction, we're not just talking about drugs and alcohol. We're talking about drugs, alcohol, uh, sex, gambling. So it's more controlled by the government when it's, when it's being sold, uh, here in the States, alcohol has been legal for a long time. Mm -hmm. Uh, Marijuana just began to be legal. And I think a lot of the states are inching their way towards legalizing a lot of other uh, recreational activity, Mm -hmm. if you want to say that, or activities, if you want to say that, that would lead to addiction. And that's why in a lot of the lectures that we deliver now, we say, well, if everything is legal, what are you going to do for your disease? With the right. treatment of your disease, same thing. Like if you have diabetes, well, I can go buy a cake. I can eat all the cake I want, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna die. Right. So I don't. Okay. Yeah. Addiction is gonna be the same way. You can go and buy whatever you want to buy, and you're
0: gonna. You have to be responsible in your own actions. Yeah. So when when you were talking about the legality of. Uh, using drugs over in Europe and in some of the uh, countries over there. And it, it reminded me of this film that I, I show in the treatment centers. And um, it's called Pleasures Unwoven. You're very familiar with it. And in the beginning of the uh, film there, uh, the gentleman that is hosting the film and narrating the film, he said that within the U.S., we are in a crisis with... Mm-hmm addiction and That's the way that we are responding or that we have responded in the past and things are starting to change a little bit is that we will arrest and lock away mm-hmm. anybody who has had anything to do with being caught for drugs or alcohol. Yeah. And there are more people incarcerated right now with drug and alcohol related charges. Than mm-hmm. the other charges, you know, maybe burglary or you know these other charges and and i don't I don't want to seem like I'm saying one is lesser than the other. They're bad. But the fact is that with these other crimes, a majority of the people that are committing these crimes are also suffering from the disease of addiction and now have tacked on these extra charges with them, yes. But it it seems to me like we're kind of starting to get away from that. And over in Europe, if it's legal, then are they arresting? I mean, would they be arresting people if they got out of control? Because
1: they do arrest people if it gets out of control. However, the amount of or the number of people that get out of control using Mm -hmm. drugs or being doing any activities that are illegal Mm -hmm. uh, are a lot less. Right than what you see here in the states. Right, and that's a proof in itself that the system need to change in here. Yes, and to become put the responsibility where it needs to be placed. Mm-hmm. That's what we need to do: place the responsibility in the right uh, in the right uh, place.
0: Right. Yeah. Okay. Place place the responsibility back on the user, and you know set it up with a system where you can tax for the sale and you can tax for the purchase of the product. And
1: and at this, yeah, that's true. And at the same time, another issue that we don't, we, a lot of like, when I listen to the radio in the morning, mm-hmm. I, I, they talk about uh, in Sacramento, they have the homeless problem. They call them the drunken bumps mm-hmm. or oh, they need to be locked away. They need to be this. That. I yeah. don't think so. I think they need mental health treatment right? and they need addiction treatment. Yes. That's what they need. They don't need to be locked away. They don't need to be arrested to be locked away. They might be arrested to go and, uh, you know, find them the proper treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's actually, I can't go to somebody who's drowning and I tell them, well, shame on you. You didn't, you didn't learn how to swim. Right. You're going to, you're going to drown anyway. Mm -hmm. I have to save him first, teach him how to swim. I'm okay. You're on your own.
0: Yeah, yeah, and it's you know, and it's it's so apparent when you are working in the trenches in the addiction field, uh, especially. Um, I mean, anywhere in the U.S., I I would imagine would have the same type of um, problems. I can speak on California because that is where I have worked, and uh, the. It seems like a lot of our hands are tied when it comes to treatment, but I think that the reason that they tie our hands a lot with a lot of regulation and a lot of rules and things that we have to follow is because we want to protect the client who is going through a treatment program. And so, it would be interesting how how do they approach the addiction treatment over in Europe? I mean, is it is it more freedom for the person coming into an, a treatment program or cuz our treatment programs here are maxed out. We have wait lists for people to come into our programs.
1: We do have wait lists. Yeah. Uh, but there is a lot of other aspects that play into this equation. Mm-hmm. So, you see confidentiality and ethics and everything, it's still intact in Europe. Mhm. OK, however, here I was working with this company in Fairfield a long time ago uh, and they said confidentiality for the for the uh, addiction treatment. It became so confidential that we don't know who has the addiction and who needs treatment. Mm-hmm. That's, you know, so it actually, you know, when we say everything uh, in the, there is moderation. Yes. We went overboard, I think, with a lot of things that we're doing. I am not sure if it's just to protect the client Mm -hmm. or it's to protect the companies who are afraid of being sued and there is really uh, no way for them to be sued. It's just fear. Another piece that is why do we have a wait list? Uh, Because there is the funds for the addiction treatment, Mm-hmm. We're just beginning to see more and more funds for the addiction treatment. Yes. We're beginning to see that it's almost that, that that like that. You know that when we say the Titanic, mm-hmm. it's taken a turn. Yes, you see how long that is.
0: It takes a long yeah. time
1: for it to turn. <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me.
0: Mm-hmm. <coughs> and you know, and so you talked about the Titanic turning, and you talked about, um, you know, the progress that we're making, and it almost seems like they they saw a leak and they they, they plugged it really quick and, and now we are learning that we can we can release some of the tension on that plug and, and still maintain some control within the industry with standards and training mm-hmm. standards and you know and, and all of these things that kind of go along with it. So yes. um so. But you know, when we look at different countries, uh, let's let's look at uh, let's look at uh, Egypt and um, you know uh, a Muslim country. Is there a wide variety of treatment options for a resident within that country, or uh, is it if they go into treatment? I mean, are they going to get into more trouble because now they're admitting that they have a problem with drugs and alcohol?
1: Well, the structure over there is totally different than here. Uh, so they, when I went over there, we were building the infrastructure mm-hmm. for the substance use disorder treatment. Mm-hmm. So they didn't have it before the early 2000. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what we were doing over there. So that the, their view of the disease of addiction have changed. However, they don't have the, uh, insurance problems that we have uh a lot of people actually pay for it out of pocket mm-hmm. and a lot of the governments not just in Egypt but I'm talking about in the Middle East they pay for it fully mm-hmm. so they don't have the same problems that we have in here here we have that it started with uh, what do you call it uh back in uh Late 80s, early 90s, managed care. Mm, mm-hmm. You know, when we used to have six months programs and stuff like yeah. that and the managed care came in and then there is no such thing. Six mm-hmm. months programs anymore It's 28 days by 28 days by 28 days. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so. in overseas, they started looking at it the exact same way that we do. However, they have more leniency with funding that they can provide treatment mm-hmm. for uh uh this group of people that have the addiction or have the addictive disease and a lot of families too they pay out of pocket Mm -hmm. to treat their uh family members Mm -hmm. so they're becoming more and more understanding yeah Uh, they look at them as human beings Mm -hmm. they have more compassion Mm -hmm. towards anybody who has the disease of addiction. Uh, let me ask you a question. Okay. How do you look at somebody here who has a disease of addiction?
0: Well, that is a really good question because when I came into, uh, I, actually, I want to answer it with two parts. I'm going to answer your question, but I also want to answer another question that ties into what you just asked that I'm going to phrase here. But um, when I view somebody with the disease of addiction, I view somebody that is crying for help inside, I, I see somebody that wants the help, but, you know, like myself, I didn't know how to get the help when I was finally at the end of, you know, saying, you know, asking, talking to God and saying, how do I rid myself of, of this want and desire, which wasn't even really a want and desire anymore. It was really a, something to maintain what I needed to do just to function. And mm-hmm. it's, it's where that point where we have that, you know, this is something now I need to do to function in life versus this is something that I really enjoy doing and I don't plan on giving it up anytime soon. Um, and so when I view somebody now that has the, the disease of addiction and comes into a program, uh, there's so much compassion that goes along with that because I, I see the potential in them when they come through that door. And even though they don't see it themselves, you know, I can I can really kind of dive into their strengths and and what they're good at, so that we can start working on allowing them to see what what we see in them. Mm-hmm. The other thing that I I I really struggled with when I came into this field was people that were homeless, and mm-hmm. uh, this is I I I don't want this to sound bad, but just because i hadn't experienced a lot of homelessness i was homeless at times but i always had a friend's house to stay at or you know i slept in my car a little bit but it really wasn't like i i had all my belongings in my car and i didn't have anywhere to go and i was sleeping on the streets so when i came into this field and going through school my instructor told me she said i want you to Start talking to homeless people when you see them on the street. I want you to start to try to get a better understanding of, you know, the homeless population. And I quickly learned working at Centerpoint with you that, I mean, it's so amazing that a lot, almost 95% of the people that would come into treatment were homeless. Mm -hmm. And they didn't have a, a safe place to go to afterwards. And I was just talking to a gentleman on the phone today at work, and and he's looking to come into treatment, and I was telling him, I said, you know, where are you staying right now? And he says, well, I'm staying at my cousin's house, and, and you know, and so we're trying to make everything safe for him until we can get him into a treatment center, be it ours or uh, maybe even yours. We, we made the referral over to you guys, but, um, you know, it's it's really astonishing that the homelessness is so prominent here in our area and Mm -hmm. maybe even around the rest of the U S but I can only speak to this area. Um, So really I I think when I look at people that have the disease of addiction, I also look at the problem of homelessness and how can we treat both of those? Okay. So if I can
1: just talk about this for a minute, mm-hmm. uh, I call it shelterless because, uh, you know, when I just mentioned a few minutes ago that we lack, somewhat lack compassion in here. Maybe you don't, but most of the, I'm talking about the society that we live in, we lack the mm-hmm. compassion mm-hmm. that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. Okay, so if somebody is shelterless, that actually robs them of all sense of safety. When you rob somebody of their sense of safety, Mm -hmm. and then you're you're talking about recovery from addiction, it's almost like you're talking, you're speaking a different language. I don't even know what you're talking about. You have to provide safety first, and then build on that. because being homeless, it doesn't mean that you're shelterless. Mm-hmm. I have seen people that come into treatment and they have this almost like dissociative, dissociation. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a way that I'm, a, I'm out of myself. I am homeless. I am not. I need to get back into my body. And start building on that. If you have somebody that's totally broken and you have to rebuild them Mm -hmm. or help them rebuild themselves, they have been so far away, uh, deviated so far away from who they are initially that they don't know how to get back. They need assistance to get back. Have you ever seen anybody when they were five years old or four years old? Running after the mom, hey, mom, I want to be an addict. Hey, mom, I want to get imprisoned. Yeah. Hey, mom, I want to, you know. Nobody ever wanted to do that. No. But it
2: happens.
0: Right. Yeah. And it becomes a way of life. It does. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I never told my parents that, hey, I think I'm going to be a drug addict one day. That sounds like it's going to be fun. Yeah. <laughs> you know. So, but, yeah. So that's but like why you said, I totally believe. It just believe,
1: happens. Yeah. Yeah. That half, of, half of treatment is education. Mm-hmm. So I have to educate myself and all the counselors that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. They need to know what addiction is. Yes. And then they need to be able to transfer whatever information they have to the people who have the addictive disease. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's half of
0: treatment. Absolutely. And, you know, and I, I think that that really comes back into that cultural competency that we talked about in the beginning as well, because um, they really go hand in hand with each other. And you have different cultures within the U.S. You have, I mean, all over the world, different cultures. I mean, that's just, um, you know, the way that the world is. Uh, but I've seen more and more people coming into treatment that come from different cultural backgrounds. And I think that sometimes when we come into the addiction field, the cultural competency of some of the people that work in the field uh, needs to be refreshed. It needs to be Mm -hmm. ongoing because, you know, we're saying, well, you know, it almost feels like we're we're saying, well, it works this way if you do it this way. But if I come from a different culture, Maybe the way that you're wanting me to do it or suggesting for me to do it is going to go against cultural norms for me, Mm -hmm. um, against stigmas for me. And now, like you said, it's making me uncomfortable to be here because you're asking me to do something that has been ingrained in me because of my culture. And mm-hmm. now I'm having to go against the grain, along with all the other changes that we're trying to introduce to this person and all the physical changes and mental changes and all of those things. So when we look at cultural competency for the professional uh, counselor, for the professional staff within a treatment center, what when I say that, what does that mean to you?
1: Okay, cultural competency. Okay, let me start by saying that. The American society, it's almost like a, a salad ball. Mm-hmm. That's what it is. It's a yeah. salad ball. You have all different kinds of, of, of vegetables in there. So we have all different kind of people that live together.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, I am not going to have everybody fit in a box. I have to fit the treatment to everybody's culture because if I'm dealing with somebody who is from uh, the Far East is different than dealing from somebody uh, coming from Russia or mm-hmm. from you know uh, China mm-hmm. or from uh, Saudi Arabia or from Egypt or from Italy or you know or somebody who's just been living in the states for generation after generation mm-hmm. they don't all think the same way and as you very well know addiction is not about the drink addiction is about all the emotions and the mistaken beliefs mm-hmm. and the negative thoughts and it ends with what taking the drink or the drug mm-hmm. or going to gamble and saying well to the hell with everything i don't care i'm just going to blow it mm-hmm. So there is a whole lot of stuff in there. And all this stuff that we're talking about, it's all cultural related. Mm -hmm. So if I ask you, uh, what do you know about the Italian culture related to the addiction Mm -hmm. treatment? Do you know about uh, somebody from uh, South Related to addiction. Mm -hmm. What do you know about an African American related to addiction? Right. Or homelessness, or, you know, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: they're totally different. Yeah. So So when you have a counselor mm -hmm. that has a a CADC2, what do they know about these cultures?
0: Right. So as a professional, what are some of the ways that we can educate ourselves about different cultures? I mean, um, how how could how could somebody like myself approach uh, the um, Muslim culture? Uh, I, I I know very little about it, and you know, and maybe I'm nervous about doing something that would be insulting to the culture or be insulting to the client. Um, so what are some ways that we can approach as staff members? Because a lot of times we get clients assigned to us and, uh, you know, we, we are, might not know what their cultural background is until we sit down in front of them and Mm -hmm. get to know them a little bit. Now, of course, we do have the assessments, the ASAMs, and the um, problem question surveys that we give them to try to get a better understanding of their biopsychosocial history. Uh, Mm -hmm. But a lot of times, they will minimize on those type of assessments until they feel comfortable with the clinician that they're sitting across from. So what are some things that we can do as professionals to try to educate ourselves on different cultures, um, maybe kind of on the fly or uh, definitely classes and stuff like that?
1: You actually said something very important a few minutes ago Mm -hmm. when you said that uh, who asked you to go and speak with uh,
0: people who are who don't have a shelter? My instructor in school. Okay. Did you get to learn about them? I did, yes. That's how
1: you know. That's how you learn about somebody. Mm-hmm. In addition to that, we read. We go and buy books or online, and we read mm-hmm. about the culture. Yeah, and when we say about culture, is like I still remember the first time I, I dealt. I was in Philadelphia working with in a diagnostic and rehabilitation center of Philadelphia mm-hmm. for dual diagnosis. But most of it was in uh, in an Italian neighborhood. So mm-hmm. most of my clients were Italians. What's interesting is that with Italians, mm-hmm. if you're not in the family, you're out of the family, I'm not going to tell you my dirty laundry, laundry mm-hmm. and I'm not going to talk about anything. Right. Until I get to know you. Right. Very well. So my job was to what? Provide safety and make somebody feel safe, unconditional acceptance. Mm-hmm. Unconditional regard for them to open up and let me in because I can't just like tell them, Oh, okay, you don't want to talk? <laughs> Fine, yeah, we're gonna just sit here until for an hour or so, and I'll see you next week. Mm-hmm. Doesn't work like that with them, okay? Uh, so and each culture is different, mm-hmm. so this is what we need to learn about each culture, and the best way to do it. Is to get to know people. Uh, a lot of times what we fail to understand is our own bias. Mm. Each one of us have bias. Okay. Yeah. And we talk about that a lot. Mm-hmm. You know, if I like that client, I'm going to bend backward right. to help him. If I don't like that client, I am just going to ah, mm-hmm. keep him out that's my bias.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I have to deal with my cultural issues to be able to move forward. Right. Because maybe my values, maybe I shouldn't be in the field mm-hmm. if I'm going to deal that way. Mm-hmm. So I need to examine my own issues, my own values and re-examine it and re-examine it and be in my toes all the time.
0: Okay. Yeah. And it's interesting that you said that, you know, uh, we need to reexamine our values and um, definitely, because one of the other classes I took was a values class. And uh, we talked about how values are instilled in us at a, at a very early age, at an infant age, at a um, child age. And, you know, in all the stages of growth that we have, we pick up different values as we move along in life. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we have to reevaluate those values, like you said, because we need to come in with a unconditional positive regard towards somebody, you know, we want them to feel safe. We want them to feel accepted. We, we don't want mm-hmm. them to feel shamed. We don't want them to feel like, you know, we're going to be talking about them after they leave and saying, oh, well, man, well, what a mess they are, right? But at the yep. same time, a lot of times I it's it's hard for that client to trust somebody because when they're out in the addiction and they're out there in that world, trust for them looks very different from what trust for you and I might look like yes. now. Yes. And yes. for a lot of them, that trust factor is so important. And I've found that if somebody feels like they can't trust you, um, especially coming out from the shelterless community, um, like you say, you know, they they won't open up to you at all. And uh, some of the things that I do when I when I have a new client that comes in and I feel like they're really shut off and and they don't want to open up, um, you know, sometimes I won't even talk about recovery with them. you know, I'll talk about a common ground. maybe we can talk about sports or maybe we can talk about something like that because I think that if we can have that person have something that's relatable between the two people, now we can start to build that trust. And now they can say, well, hey, if if you are interested in this and and you are talking to me about this and we're having a good conversation about it, you know, maybe I can let you in on on my little secrets here. Because now I'm starting to feel comfortable with that.
1: And, you know, that's interesting. This is exactly what we tell, what we say. We call it what? Convention strategy. Mm -hmm. Because I could sit with a client. I want to talk about addiction. Mm -hmm. But they don't want to talk about it. So I'm going to find something that they want to talk about. Whether it's baseball. Whether it's football. whether I'm building rapport. Mm -hmm. I'm building trust. It might take a session or two. Guess what? we will take a session or two. You mm-hmm. see, the thing is that we fail to see is that each and every counselor need to be non-judgmental.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And that's not easy. That's not easy. And I always say the client failure to achieve their goals is actually the counselor inability to find that door mm-hmm. or convention strategy yes. for the client. So it's not. Whose fault is it? I'm not uh-huh. blaming, but well, so I, he's resistant, right? Well, maybe I'm
2: closed. Yeah. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, it's it's really uh, it's really interesting now that I've worked in the field for, gosh, um, almost uh, three and a half years now. Maybe that's not quite right, but a little over three years now and being able to work at all these different facilities and seeing how all of the facilities are run differently and and how they approach the idea of addiction within the U.S. And, you know, it's 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 really um, interesting to see how different people. Operate within a facility and how the clinical um, supervisors and the clinical directors uh, can assign clients to certain counselors and the care that is taken into assigning a client to a specific counselor because they feel like it's going to be a good fit for them. Mm-hmm. Because uh, you know, I've, I've I'll admit, I as a counselor, I've been fired a couple of times by a, a few clients, and you know, and they said, "Well, I we're I don't think I'm a good fit for you, and I want a new counselor." And so, you know, we go through the process of, of what are they feeling? What are they experiencing? And, you know, what do they hope to get out of treatment and what do they hope to get out of the sessions with the counselor? And, you know, sometimes maybe they aren't a good fit and maybe having a different counselor would be better for them. But sometimes just the process of talking about that with them allows them to open up and allows them to see, you know, well, I'm looking at it this way and yeah, the person across from me is actually agreeing with me that, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe we can take steps in in treating the addiction uh, in a certain way. And, And, but I, but I think a lot of it comes down to that discomfort that they have. And, you know, it is. And it could also be uh, like old memories Mm -hmm. triggers. Yeah.
1: Like a lot of times I get clients that are telling, I don't want her as a counselor or I don't want Mm -hmm. him as a counselor. They trigger me. Yeah. I say, ah, that's interesting. Okay, Mm -hmm. let's talk about your triggers. Let's deal with it. You see, that's a, that's, here you go. And it becomes a therapy session. Yeah. Until they're no longer triggered Mm -hmm. by that person. Because as long as there is a trigger, guess what? There is some kind of memory in there that is not being dealt with. Right. That's what we trigger. Yeah. Okay. So everything that we do is, or ought to be therapeutic,
0: Mm -hmm.
1: everything that we do. Yes. The last thing that we do is to talk about picking the drink or the drug, Mm -hmm. because everything in life, it builds up to that moment that you reach and you say, you know what? I'm done. Yeah. Okay. So we're talking about behavioral health, Mm -hmm. really. In, In essence, we're talking about behavioral health. Not just about drinking or doing drugs.
0: Yeah, because it's the behaviors that we have to change in order to help maintain our recovery or our sobriety, you know, whatever terminology you want to use. Because it's yeah. the behaviors or what is what we're reacting to when we pick up that drink or that drug. And now we're saying, oh, I have picked up the blanket that makes me feel safe and secure and and now nothing can hurt me because I'm high or I'm intoxicated and I feel mm-hmm. so safe. But when it comes to addiction, now we have to take that blanket and we have to give them a different kind, kind of blanket, another blanket that's going to make them safe. Is that correct?
1: That is correct. But you see, here you go. That is the exact same point that I was talking about. Mm-hmm. That blanket you're talking about
0: yeah,
1: is their shelter. Mm-hmm. Even though they're shelterless. Right. But they're using that blanket as what? As safety, their, their safety. Shelter, which is a facade. Yeah. Okay. I heard you uh, in the beginning of this uh, episode, you mm-hmm. mentioned Pleasure Unwoven. Yes. The movie or the video. Mm-hmm. And uh, what's interesting is that maybe it would be really great if uh you could have a whole episode talking about what is addiction. Yeah. Because addiction is not the drugs and alcohol. So Mm -hmm. maybe we need to talk about that.
0: Yeah, that would be fantastic. I think that that would actually be a really good one for the the live show that I co-host on the Recovery Revolution Live. Okay. Um, Because we we have uh, two other hosts on there. And I think that that would just be a fantastic episode to just talk about what is addiction. And in The Pleasures Unwoven, he makes his his case to say that addiction is a disease. You have the choice argument, and then you have the disease model of addiction. And he goes through the whole choice argument and, mm-hmm. you know, sliding that drink over to the alcoholic and yeah. taking a gun and, and pointing it at him and then say, you know, if you take a drink, I'm going to blow your brains out. And that alcoholic is thinking to himself, man, I bet I could get a sip in before he pulls the trigger, you know. maybe he's bluffing. Yeah, and maybe he's bluffing. Maybe he doesn't have bullets in the gun, Um, you know. And and all of these things go on in our head when we're in that stage of addiction.
1: And, you know, the the other piece of that that was really important is the chemicals in the brain. That's where the addiction lives. Yes. The chemicals change in the brain because I could come to you and I tell you, hey, guess what? I'm in recovery, Mm -hmm. but I never did drugs or alcohol in my life. How could that be?
0: Well, because we're changing behaviors. It's
1: but no, I'm in recovery because I am in recovery. I am uh, in recovery from addiction, but I never used drugs and alcohol. Could I have been addicted to work? Sure. Could I have been addicted to gambling? Sure. Could I have been addicted to anger? Mm -hmm. Could I have been addicted to sex? or whatever it is that changes the chemicals in my brain. Mm -hmm. And that's what addiction is.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah. And, and you know, the, the release of serotonin and all the, uh, synapses that fire within our brains, it it doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be a chemical that releases and fires those, those connections within our brain. You know, if if you go into, um, let's say you go into McDonald's and McDonald's has their bright menu up on the wall and they have a picture of every single item on that menu and they have a nice cheeseburger on there and they have a nice French fry and they have a nice soda and you can see the lettuce coming off of the French fry and the cheese coming off of the, you know, and, and all these things. Right. So we can see that visually. And what is that doing to us? That is releasing a pleasure that we're saying, Oh my yeah. gosh, that looks so good. I want that. And that has nothing to do with drugs or alcohol.
1: The and same with sex. Yeah. That's the whole point is that addiction is not the drugs and alcohol
0: mm-hmm.
1: and people need to understand that. Yeah. So uh, a lot of education.
0: Yeah. A lot of education. I, I think that that's a, that's a really good idea. Um, So we will definitely get you set up. I'll send you a link over to um, the live show. It records on Thursday nights and it's 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. And um, that would be a really great episode. So for the listeners tonight and today listening to this show. Um, you know, make sure that you guys uh, keep an eye out for the Recovery Revolution Live. I do have a YouTube link uh, posted in the show notes, and that will take you over to the Recovery Revolution Live's uh, YouTube channel, and our past videos are put up there. And you can also join us live on Thursday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. If you're over on the East Coast, that will be 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. And our show runs for maybe an hour or two hours, depending on you know, how engaging we get with the guest and, and we usually have giveaways on the show. So we'll give away um, recovery um, swag or hoodies and, and stuff like that. So we have a lot of fun on that show. So, well, uh Yusuf, it's been a real pleasure talking about all of these things with you. um And I want to uh, do something that I've started doing with all of my guests on Uh, the show and this is something that is going to be new for you Um, but right now I have a little rapid fire questions for you and so we're gonna we're gonna ask you some questions are you ready sir all right what is your go-to lazy dinner pizza pizza oh I like that one all (laughs) righty what is one of your nicknames yo Okay. All righty. If you could, oh, this is a good one. If you could afford to buy any car, which car would you drive? Uh, Oh, that's a tough one. I want them mm-hmm. all. Yeah. A fast one. Would, would, it, would <laughs> fast. it be a uh, fuel-injected car or one of the newer ones?
1: No, no, no. I'm not getting an electric car. I'm sorry.
0: Okay. Well, if I
1: drive a car, I need to feel it.
0: Okay. Okay. Because I know you like the older cars. Yes. So, all right. Yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite rainy day activity?
1: Uh, jogging.
0: Okay. In the rain. Jogging in the rain. Oh, I like that. Yeah. All righty. Do you have any pets? I used
1: to, and I'm going to. Okay. Uh, I used to have a dog. But he passed
0: away a few years ago, so we're getting ready to buy another. Okay, okay. Good enough. Excellent. Are you going to get it from the rescue? Oh, good, good. Yeah, rescue dogs are wonderful. So that's yeah. where we get all of our dogs from—is the rescue shelters. Okay. Do you consider yourself to be tech savvy? Uh, I
1: can
0: I can hold my own. You can hold your own. Okay, yeah. okay. I, I can vouch for that. I can vouch for that. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> alrighty money or happiness 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 a night out or a night in that depends <laughs> okay <laughs> all right all right. are you more of an introvert or an extrovert both okay all righty and would you rather fly on an aisle seat or a window seat when I was younger, I used to like window seats, but now I'd rather be in an seat. Okay. All righty. And my last question that I like to ask all of my guests, what is your favorite Disney character? Whoa. <laughs> you can only pick one. Oh. <laughs> an old one? Sure. Any, any Disney character. You remember Pluto? I love Pluto.
1: Yep.
0: Yeah. 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 Hey, Pluto Pluto kind of reminds me of Marmaduke. Do you remember that comic that ran in, in the uh, newspaper? It was Marmaduke, and it was this big, yeah. it looked like a Rhodesian Ridgeback almost, and just this huge dog that was absolutely clumsy. <laughs> and, yeah. 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 yeah, so. yeah. Good times. So, All right. Well, uh, Dr. Yusuf, I really want to thank you again for coming on to the show tonight. And um, I, I think this is going to be a really great episode. I think we covered a lot of really good stuff. And I'm very excited to have you come back on to the live show on the Recovery Revolution Live on Thursday nights. And we can talk about what is addiction. Uh, I Thank think that you. that would be a really interesting uh uh show to have go on the air and um we we have a lot of great uh co-hosts on there Brett from the Recovery Survey podcast and also Ashley Grimes who is the president of NAMI in Florida and mm-hmm. uh so a lot of a lot of good uh, people on that show that we can talk about addiction and what that means and and the clinical definition of addiction and uh, you know and what the perception of addiction is and so I think that that would be a very great show. I look forward to it. Yes, all right. And if you guys would like to uh, follow us on any of your. Uh, Podcast apps, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you are listening to us on Apple Podcasts, please go ahead and give us a rating. This will allow other guests and people to find the show. And if you want to leave a comment uh, about the show, if you're enjoying the show, if you have any suggestions on topics that you would like us to talk about on the show, please uh, let me know. We have some upcoming guests in two weeks. We are going to be having Shane Raymer from That Sober Guy Radio will be coming on to the show. And Shane is also going to be doing the Recovery Revolution Live on March 3rd. So be sure to check out those shows. And again, I want to thank my guest, Dr. Yusuf, for coming on today. I want to thank everybody for listening today. You have been listening to the Drunken Worm Podcast. We will be bringing you new content every week. If you would like to follow us, please hit that follow button on your favorite streaming app. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, Pandora, and iHeartRadio. You may also go to our website, thedrunkenwormpodcast.com, to learn more about the show, sign up for our email club, and visit our blog. If you would like to join the conversation on social media, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also join Carl as he co-hosts the Recovery Revolution Live show every Thursday, at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. All the information that was just mentioned will be listed in the show description with clickable links so that you don't miss a beat. Thank you again for joining us this week. Stay well, stay sober, and live your best life. Take care.